We'll be in the book of Luke this morning. You want to turn with me to Luke chapter number one. We're going to be looking at part of the Christmas story that, that's often skipped over because it doesn't seem critical, it doesn't seem important, but it's, it's vitally important not only to, to the Christmas story, but also for us today. There are some great lessons that can be learned in this today. And that's the story of John the Baptist. You see, because before Jesus was here on this earth, John the Baptist was. He was his cousin. We looked a little bit at his mother's uh, miraculous pregnancy a couple weeks ago. And uh, his father's doubt, even though his father was a good man, a righteous man, his father's doubt. And uh, we looked a little bit at that a couple weeks ago, but we see that he was, he's born six months before Jesus was. And he became the, the forerunner, that voice crying in the wilderness that, that came before Jesus. So it's important to look at this because God doesn't just do things for no reason. There was a point to this. Of course, one of the points was to fulfill the prophecy that was given over 800 years before. But there was even more to it than just that. We're going to start reading in verse number 57 of Luke chapter number 1. It says, now Elizabeth's full time came, and she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, I was telling somebody before the service today, I've got, I normally have about two to three pages of notes. I've got five pages of notes this morning, because I, every time I try and whittle something out, I'm like, no, this has got to stay in, this has got to stay in. And I just couldn't get that, that feeling the Holy Spirit wanted me to cut anything. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be talking really, really fast, and I need you guys to listen really, really fast this morning. Because if you listen fast, and I talk fast, then we can get over and break our fast and start eating. So I'll be doing that. Here shortly. So we see this child was birthed, this child was born, he was sealed with God's power, God's mercy. The child's birth confirmed God's power. It confirmed the promises that that God's angel had made to Zacharias. We see that that, that Elizabeth had had conceived when she was old, well beyond the years of being able to to have uh, children. Zacharias had been visited by the angel of God, told exactly what would happen back in the beginning of Luke chapter number one. And we see the birth of this child is the fulfillment and the proclamation of this child is that God is good and that God is faithful and and the neighbors all see this and the relatives all see this. The fact that the child was born just as God had said is evidence of God's glorious power. Though I love when I look in the scripture and I see God's promises being fulfilled to the letter because there are still unfulfilled promises. One of the biggest ones is that Jesus Christ is coming back for me. And when I see promises like this fulfilled, then I can hold fast to the fact that Jesus said he's coming back for me, and I can hold to that. That's a hope I have, not a hope that's based upon emptiness, but a hope hope that's built upon the very word of God, the very character of God. God is able to control even natural events. He's able to do things that defy science. And he sent forth the forerunner of the Messiah exactly as he promised. Luke chapter 1, verse 37, so, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. You're looking for a mantra. You're looking for something to continually remind yourself about. That verse is a great verse. But if you, if you underline things in your Bible, you might want to underline that. Luke chapter 1, verse 37, go over a page. Says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. Isn't that amazing? 
Because I, I know I find myself sometimes limited by my own understanding, limited by my own imagination, limited by my own intelligence to, to where I don't see a possible way that this could ever happen. And I have to remind myself it's not based upon my inability to, to see it or my inability to even understand it. With God, there's nothing that's impossible. God can do what God wants to do. The child's birth confirmed God's mercy. It showed that God was merciful in two ways. The fact that John was born as a baby of promise demonstrated that God, God's mercy upon the people, even the insignificant people, an insignificant woman with a desperate need to have children. The fact that God used John in his plan of salvation is, is amazing to me. Because even though John was, was one of the priests at the temple, he doubted God. And despite him doubting God, God still used him. God still fulfilled his promise. You see, God's promise wasn't contingent upon what Zacharias did or said. God made a promise. And God's promise is only contingent upon himself. I know I've, from time to time, I don't feel worthy of God's goodness or God's grace. But it's not his goodness and grace upon me isn't contingent upon me. If it was contingent upon me, I'd fail at every turn. It's contingent upon him and his love for us. You know, the same privilege is given to us. God wants to use every single one of us in his plan of salvation. Here he's using them to raise up the forerunner of the Messiah. But he wants to use each one of us to be that, that one, that voice crying in the wilderness, that voice that goes out and shares the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. He wants to use each one of us. He wants each one of us to be saved and each one of us to bear witness of that salvation. The child's birth caused all to rejoice. Did you see that? And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. God's word being fulfilled needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be broadcast because our world needs some rejoicing right now. Our community needs some rejoicing. We live in a, in a day and age where everything seems upside down and backwards. And they need to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even if they reject it, even if they scoff at it, it doesn't matter. They still need to hear it. Because those that scoff the loudest, those that reject the most vocally, are those that the seed is planted to the deepest in. That's why they yell so loud. Verse number 59. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, said Not so, he shall be called John. So after eight days, that was the tradition, then after eight days they would circumcise the child, and that's when the child was given his name. The child wasn't named at birth. They were given their name later. And so they were, normally it was a father's name or a family name. And so everybody just assumed that since this is a miraculous child and Zacharias' only son, that it would be named Zacharias. And Elizabeth had to stop. They said, no, no, his name was John. Now this would have caused some confusion because John wasn't a family name for them. It seemed like an odd name. But this was the command that was given from God. This was the name. Zacharias, Elizabeth, they, they didn't dare and disobey again. 
There's no way that Zacharias wasn't going to get it right this time. The name sealed that prophetic witness. The angel had told Zacharias what to name the child, and that's exactly what he was named. Verse number Sixty-one, it says, And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake, and he praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these things were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. The child's birth caused several great, amazing results. The first of which is that that the his, the father was miraculously healed. Remember, he hasn't been able to speak since he since he spoke out and, and doubted the angel of the Lord. And now that he's able, he's he's been now that he's obedient. Now he is able to speak. He's able to praise God. The people were were awe stricken. The the word fear there does not mean terror and fright. It, it means reverence. It means they were awe stricken. It's a reverential awe. A reverential fear of God. The events were spread abroad. God's hand upon the child was, was subject of the countryside. Everybody's talking about this child that was born, this miraculous baby that was born, this one that's to be the fore, forerunner of the Messiah. And whether they believe that or not, they, they had to acknowledge the fact that it happened exactly the way the angel of the Lord had said it. There was a sense of destiny. There was a sense of destiny around this child that people held on, held on to it. There's a, a sense of destiny that they knew that something great was happening here. And I imagine as that child grew and grew, people, people were watching because they knew there was a destiny there. These things should take place in our lives as well. We should, we should be praising God the way Zacharias was. We should be awestricken at the events I know one of the reasons why Satan allows so much to be to come into the, this, this season of the year is because he's desiring to kind of kind of make us numb to everything, and we can't be numb to the to the uh, to the manger. We can't be numb to the birth of Jesus Christ. We should be awe stricken with what took place, and we should spread the events. We should be telling people the true meaning of the birth of Jesus Christ. They've done everything. They've, they, they, they do everything to try and minimize it and try and whitewash it and try and, and, and take the true meaning of Christmas away. Everything is about, about lights and trees and presents, and, and it's supposed to be about Jesus Christ to the point that, that they don't even like to say the word Christmas anymore. They like to take the word Christmas out of the, out of the mouths of people and, and, and use uh, happy holidays, which is just foolishness. Because every year, it doesn't matter what time of the year, they'll push back and say, well, there's so many holidays. There's holidays all year long, but we don't do that any other time. And once Christmas is done, we drop it. We don't use happy holidays for New Year's. We drop it immediately after Christmas. Because that word Christmas, that word Christ, is offensive in the mouths of so many They'll take, instead of writing Christmas, they'll write Xmas, and, and they'll say, oh, well, that's just an abbreviation. No, it's not an abbreviation. We don't abbreviate any other holiday like that. We don't take the name out of anything else. There are churches, because, 
Christmas Eve is on Sunday. I belong to several different different um, uh, pastor groups on, on Facebook, and, and I don't contribute a lot because there's so much liberalism out there. And one of the discussions was uh, how many of the churches aren't even going to have services on Sunday because Christmas is a time for family, not a time for the church. What? We have churches in our community that won't be open on Sunday. We have churches around this country that won't be open on Sunday because it's Christmas Eve. And it just blows my mind. Can you imagine somebody having a big party for your birthday and, and, and not only not inviting you, but, but purposely not inviting you? Like, hey, you know, we're, we're here to, we're going to celebrate Dean's birthday. Well, don't invite Dean. You know he's just going to eat all the cold cuts. <laughs> we'll invite everybody else, but let's not invite Dean. We would never do that. How offensive would that be? Poor Dean sitting home all alone, hungry, and we're all out there eating all the cold cuts. We wouldn't do that, but we take that out. I've, been, I've had people push back at me, well, what about, what about Hanukkah, and what about the other celebrations? You know what? If, if somebody celebrates Hanukkah, I don't want them to say happy holidays to me. I want them to say happy Hanukkah to me, if that's what they celebrate. I, I, I would be honored. That's the polite thing to do. Well, why, why wash it down? Why water it down with something as generic as happy holidays? It's like going to, remember when they used to have generic food at the stores? You go into the store and you know, they'd have all the food and there'd be a white can and it just said corn. You hoped it was corn inside. Sometimes it was all water inside. But it's just that generic. You have no idea what you're getting because it's a white label with the black letters on it and it just said corn. And that's what we try and do with Christmas. We try and make it generic. We try and take all the sense of the wonder and the awe of Christmas out of it. We become numb to it because uh, we, we work harder and we, we spend more and, and, and at any other time of the year and it becomes sometimes not even numb, it becomes painful. And that's not what it's supposed to be like. We should be awestruck. We should, we should seek the destiny surrounding John. We should see the, the, the privilege that we have to be able to study what took place, him being the fulfillment of the Scripture. We have the privilege of knowing just who John was, the forerunner of the Messiah himself. Verse number 67, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, we're going to get to the prophecy here in just a minute. But we see that Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. Once Zacharias obeyed God, not only was he healed, not only was, it, was the, 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 uh, the, the deafness and the dumbness removed from him, but we, we see that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. This was a, a very unusual thing in that day and age. Most people were not filled with the Holy Spirit. Because this is still, even though we're in the New Testament, this is still, they're still living under the law. They're still living under the Old Testament. They're still living the way the Holy Spirit has, has interacted with mankind all through the ages. And that he didn't indwell. He would come for a task. He would come for a season. He would come for a, a while, and then he would leave again. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something that takes place after Jesus Christ rises from the grave. It's something that we take for granted. We take it for granted because we always have the Holy Spirit with us. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit resides inside of you. Now you get to choose how much the Holy Spirit has of you. You get to choose how filled you are, how much of your life you allow Him to control, how much of your life you allow Him to have access to. But we have that filling of the Holy Spirit now that didn't happen in the time of, of Zacharias. This was an unusual occurrence. This was a, a huge blessing. It shows that Zacharias was forgiven for his sin of unbelief. It shows that he was re being rewarded for his faithfulness. 
being filled with the Holy Spirit is the exact picture of what happens to us when we're forgiven of our sins. When we accept the gift of Jesus Christ, the gift that he paid for on the cross of Calvary. Verse number 68. We see the first part. This is Sometimes it's, this is called the Song of Zacharias. It's sometimes it's called the Prayer or Proclamation of Zacharias. But we see him giving his song or his prophetic utterance. And we have to understand that, that this prophetic utterance that he's given, it's, it's as if Zacharias is standing in the future and he's looking back at what's about to happen. Verse number 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercies promise, the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to, for, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercies of our God, whereby the day spring from on high have visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in the spirit. It was in the desert till the day that was showing unto Israel. So we see this, this prophetic utterance of Zacharias. It kind of takes two forms. It takes two parts. The first part, he's like standing in the future and he's looking back and he's looking at what Jesus Christ has already done. Of course, in his day, it hadn't happened yet. But it's as if he was standing here with us today and he's telling us this is what Jesus Christ did. And then he transitions to talking about his son, the son that God gave him. And he's telling him the great things that he is going to do. We see that the, the Messiah was the one whom God visited and redeemed his people. It was God himself that was coming to earth. And that John was going to be the forerunner of that. The Messiah he was the mighty savior of David's house. He's called the horn or the mighty one of salvation. Because he not only is going to redeem the house of, of David, he's not only going to be an earthly king, but more importantly, he's a spiritual king. A lot of people in the day, even after this was written, they didn't understand the difference in the two. And God, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of both. He will not only be, and is not, uh, he's not only the, the earthly king of Israel, the earthly king of the, the, the family of David, but he is the spiritual king for all who believe, all who have accepted him. It says he's from the house of his servant David. David was raised up to be a deliverer, an earthly deliverer of the people. Jesus Christ is to be the spiritual deliverer. The Messiah was the horn promised to David, the one who fulfilled the prophecies made concerning David. Messiah was the one who was prophesied. The, the idea is that, that God is working out his plan. Just as he prophesied, just as he's giving us the prophecy here, just as he continues to we see lived out in the life of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, as we see these two lived out, we see God's plan working. 
coming to fruition when it didn't seem like it was possible. You know, we've, we've waited a couple thousand years for God to come back and take us back home. They had been waiting over 800 years since the last prophecy had been uttered about Jesus Christ, about the coming Messiah. And just as our culture is, is lazy, and just as our culture gives lip service and our churches give lip service to, to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back, but, but deep inside our hearts we don't really believe it as a whole. If we did, we would live differently in our communities. We'd live differently in our families. Their people were doing the same thing. They worshiped. They, they, they said prayers. They, they, they gave readings about the coming Messiah. But when he truly came, very few were actually looking for him. And even those that were looking for him most rejected him. The Messiah had been foretold since the world began. One of the first prophecies in the Bible is the prophecy that, that God gives saying that the, the seed of the woman would bruise the, the, the head of Satan. All through the scripture we see that it was prophecy. The Messiah had been foretold since the beginning of the world. The prediction of the Messiah deals with our salvation. The Messiah was coming to save us. He was coming to save the world. They were looking, even at the time of his, of his entrance into Jerusalem, they were looking for an earthly king. But God didn't leave heaven to come to earth as Jesus Christ to be an earthly king, to just simply save us for a few years. We still look for that. We look for politicians. We, you know, we, we fight tooth and nail over politicians that don't even care about us. And yet we think that somehow if this politician gets in office, or, or if this politician gets into office, that somehow... They're going to save America. That somehow they're going to make America great again. That somehow they're going to build it all back better. And the reality is they're not going to do any of that. Because they don't truly care. And we put all of our hope and all of our dreams into them, just like they did Jesus Christ, and hope that, that we're going to get a Savior that's going to save us for three or four years. And Jesus Christ didn't come to save us in a temporary situation like a politician. He came to save us and redeem us for all of eternity. They missed it then. I'm afraid too many Christians miss it today. By the way they live their lives, the way they talk, they're missing it today. Jesus Christ didn't come to make your life here on earth easier. He came to make your eternity perfect. I'll take a season of this if it means I get to spend the eternity with my Savior. The Messiah was the one who fulfilled the promises of mercy, covenant, the oath made to Abraham. The very fact that he's offering a salvation when none of us deserve salvation shows how merciful he is and how much he loves us. God's mercy is delivered to us in a couple of different ways. First, he gives us the mercy so that we're able to, and the power so that we're able to serve him without fear. Secondly, the purpose is that men might live righteously and be able to serve God forever. There's nothing temporary about Jesus Christ. There's nothing temporary about his mercy or about his love. We see the second part of his, of his proclamation or his song, if you will, starting in verse 76, where he transitions to talking about John the Baptist. He predicts four things about John. John was to be the prophet of the highest. There had been no prophet in Israel for over 400 years. 
John was going to be the first prophet since Malachi. Christ was called the highest, therefore John is the prophet of the highest. He is the, the, Christ is the most high. It's a, an inference into, into his deity because only God can be called the most high. The deity, the very incarnation of God in Christ was being proclaimed and John was going to be the one to proclaim it. John was called the prophet of the highest of Christ or of God himself. He was to prepare the way. He was the voice in the wilderness that had been prophesied. He was the, to prepare the way and prepare the ground for the Lord. He was to proclaim salvation and even the forgiveness of sin. John was going to have a message that was very different than any of the, the priests, the scribes of that day. He was going to proclaim salvation. He was going to proclaim that our sins could be forgiven. Not just covered up, not just set aside, but truly forgiveness of sin. And John was to proclaim the heavenly sun's rise. As John grew and, the, and Jesus grew, there came a point where, where John had to step down and Jesus Christ had to be exalted. The Messiah was being sent through the tender mercies of God. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That Messiah was here to shed the light. Shed light to those sitting in darkness. Who were those sitting in darkness? Those that have never, had never heard the word, primarily at that time, the Gentiles. He was coming to share that light, not just with the Jewish people, but also with us Gentiles. Luke 2.32 says, A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So he was a light to all the world. He was a light to those who sat in darkness. And then he was a light to those who are in the shadow of darkness, the Bible tells us. John 5.24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. There's a difference from those that sit in darkness and sit in the shadow. Those that sit in darkness don't realize they're in the darkness. They don't have that understanding. So Jesus Christ came as the light so the entire world would know that they're in darkness. But then you've got those that know they're in darkness and they choose the darkness. So they move out of the light and they move into the shadows. They choose to reject. Jesus Christ came to be a light to them too. To tell them that they need to stop rejecting. That they need to, to, to uh, uh, move back to the light. He came to be a guide unto our feet and the, uh, to the way of peace. In John 16, 33, it says, These things I have spoken unto you that you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then verse 80, we already read it. I'll read it again. It says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. We see very little about John's childhood. We know very little about Jesus' childhood either. But we see very little about John's childhood. We see a couple things here. He waxed strong in the spirit. He was, he was advanced. He, his his uh, spirituality was strong, meaning that it was probably stronger than other people his age, other people around him, because the Holy Spirit was with him. He was a, a boy of a strong heart and contentment. He was raised in a different environment than most boys. He was raised in the desert. 
he was taken away from the, the city. You have to con- commend the parents. It's tough. A lot of parents raise their, their children in the city because that's where the work's at. That's where the food's at. That's where all the conveniences are. And so they raise their children there. But unfortunately, the, it's a fine line because the, the closer you get to those things, the closer you also get to the sins of this world. This is like the, those parents that choose to homeschool. They know that it's easier for their children to stay in school. It's easier on them. It's easier on them financially. It's easier on them in all kinds of ways, but it's not as good for the children. And so they make that choice to pull their children out of school. And that's where they're, this is kind of what his parents are doing here. They're making a choice to pull him out of the city and go live in the desert where he's not impacted by the, the sins of the world, where he's not distracted by the things of the world. And he stayed there until it was his time to come. He would be that voice crying out of the wilderness. The crying need of the hours for believers to grow in Jesus Christ the way he did. The crying need of the hours for believers to, to grow strong in the Spirit. And Ephesians 4, 14 and 15 says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, I find it interesting that that here he's talking about several places he talks about us, we need to grow up. And we don't see much about John's childhood. We don't see much about Jesus' childhood because they needed to grow up. John, more so than Jesus, needed to grow up. He needed to learn. He needed to become, he needed to become strong in the faith. And yet we have Christians, and as Ephesians is talking about there, we have Christians that although they appear to be grown, they're still acting like little children. Spiritually, they haven't grown up. They haven't read their Bible. They haven't studied their Bible. They haven't spent time in fellowship honing each other. The Bible says that iron sharpeneth iron. And we need that time together. We need that that time with God to grow, getting away from the world and growing up as Christians. That word right there, the the word that's given to us there about us growing up, it says that that we henceforth be no more children. He wasn't talking to, to physical children. He was talking to spiritual children in Ephesus. And he's telling them, you've got to grow up. And the word that God is giving to the churches today is churches, we we need to grow up. We we get so tied up in all the things of the world, we need to focus upon his word. We need to grow as Christians. We need to become stronger. We don't need to worry about what the person sitting in the pew behind us or in front of us is doing. We don't need to worry about what other people are doing. We need to worry about ourselves as each one of us grow. The Bible says that we're a body. And each piece of that body needs to grow and function. When one piece isn't growing and functioning right, it's a deformity. And it affects the entire body. Each one of us needs to grow. If nothing else from this Christmas season, I I want you to see how that babe that was laid in the manger, he grew up. He grew up to be the sacrifice for all of humanity. For John the Baptist, as we see his miraculous birth and all, but we see what he did, he grew up. And as Christians, we need to grow up. We need to become men and women for God, not boys and girls. God has chosen us to be his vessels. He's chosen us to be the conduit of his love. He's chosen us to be the conduit of his judgment and his righteousness here in this world. And if we don't do it, people are going to die and go to hell. Every single day, people are dying all around us. 
and people are going to hell for no good reason other than we never grew up. We never grew up to share the gospel with them. My prayer is if you're here today that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've done that, praise God. But it doesn't stop there. Once you accept Christ as your Savior, you're like John the Baptist or Jesus Christ in the manger. You're there, you're real, you're alive, but now it's time to grow up. And it doesn't matter how long you've been saved. Maybe you've been saved for a year or 10 years or 50 years. It doesn't matter how long you've been saved if you haven't been growing. The good thing is it's never too late to start growing. It's never too late to make that commitment that I'm going to grow and be better tomorrow than I am today. I'm going to be closer to the Lord tomorrow than I am today. We can each make that commitment. As we make that commitment, our church grows closer to God. Our community grows closer to God. I mentioned before that politicians don't have our best interest at heart, and they don't. If you think they do, you're deceiving yourself. There's no politician that's ever going to be able to save America. The only thing that's going to save America is the church house. And the only way the church house is going to do it is if each individual Christian gets right with God. As we go, so the nation goes. The reason why our nation is so messed up is because our churches are so messed up. Those professing the banner of Christianity are, are, are so messed up. What do we expect? We expect the world to act better? <laughs> 